The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let us listen now for God's word as it echoes to us from Jeremiah 22, beginning with the third verse. Thus says the Lord, act with justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the alien the orphan, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then through the gates of this house shall enter kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not heed these words. I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors work for nothing and does not give them their wages, who says, I will build myself a spacious house with large upper rooms and who cuts windows out for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Are you a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, says the Lord. But your eyes and heart are only on your dishonest gain for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, alas, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, Lord, or alas, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Hey, king, Jeremiah shouts from beneath the palace walls, change your ways or you're going to be buried like a donkey. Do you hear what I'm saying? Nobody will mourn your passing. 
Nobody will weep for you. Nobody will sigh. Alas, his poor majesty. Your body will be tossed unceremoniously on the cart that rolls through Jerusalem's streets every morning. Your carcass will be collected with the other dead animals. You'll be dumped outside the gates so that we do not have to smell you rot. And nobody, I mean nobody, will care. This sort of prediction endeared Jeremiah to the royal family. Not. In today's text, the prophet goes straight for the monarchy's jugular. Jeremiah knows the kings have their earthly comforts and personal protection pretty much covered. Feather pillows, shiny soldiers. The prophet realizes that the thoughts of well-situated rulers naturally turns to the future, to legacy. How will I be remembered? God sees you up there, says Jeremiah, patting your own nest. You've paneled your walls with imported cedar. You're painting your bedroom with vermilion, a rare red pigment mined by slaves in far-off lands. You've got this big palace renovation underway, and yet you refuse to pay your workers to to compensate your own people. You're fixing up your digs with slave labor. No bills? Do you really think that's a perk of your job? Well, I have news for you, O foolish king. The invoice for making things nice behind your gates is about to come due. The house you're building, says Jeremiah, will soon become a desolation. You think, the prophet continues, that being king means adding another wing to the palace. But consider this, your father, when he was king, had plenty to eat and drink. Your dad managed just fine. He was king and he upheld the cause of the poor and needy. He cared and the rest of society followed suit. Space was made at folk at every level of the economic ladder. Policies were enabled to help people earn a living, to provide food and drink for their families. But you've forgotten your father's example. You look out your sweet, newly framed windows and say, let the poor fend for themselves. If they have no bread, let them eat cake. Your legacy totters atop an unrighteous foundation. You have paneled your walls with injustice. And this, O oh mighty king, is going to come back to bite you. Have you seen where they dump the donkeys outside of town? One of the hottest debates in America today revolves around critical race theory. Critical race theory raises questions like, is racism woven into the very fibers of our society's institutions and policies? And this question is, like all hot-button questions, turning us inside out. Both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times ran stories this past week describing rancorous school board meetings in various corners of this country 
where the use of critical race theory is being debated. Now, one of the reasons why this, these debates are so hotly contested is that once again, we're asking people to approach an important and complex conversation with a binary response. Yes, I embrace critical race theory and all that falls beneath its broad umbrella, or no, I reject critical race theory and I plan to dismiss it as a ridiculous concept. What if, instead of lining up behind for and against microphones at school board meetings, we were to turn down the heat and dig into the issues themselves? What if we were to commit ourselves to seeking a deeper truth? What if we were to wrestle with Jeremiah's unsettling words? Have we built foundations and walls and upper rooms out of injustice? As Americans, we cannot dismiss this question or the uncomfortable facts it calls us to face. For example, what does it mean that some of the most significant architectural symbols of American democracy, including the United States Capitol and the White House, were built by slaves? In fact, African-American slaves built the White House not once, but twice, as you history buffs know, because the presidential residence was burned down during the War of 1812. During the construction of the Capitol, and this is in our country's records, during the construction of the Capitol, the United States made 385 payments, not to slaves, but to slave owners to cover the construction of our legislative temple. Seven different American presidents, including Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Andrew Jackson, Zachary Taylor, brought their own slaves to the White House to help maintain and run its upper rooms. Woe to him writes Jeremiah. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors work for nothing and does not give them their wages. What at first looks like a metaphor in Jeremiah turns out to be just plain historical fact. And of course, this compels us to wonder if injustice was there, it is there in the bricks and mortar of our democracy, has it also penetrated the educational systems, the housing policies, the fibers of what we like to think is a meritocracy with liberty and justice for all. Our history and our faith pushes us to engage these questions, not defensively or from a posture of fear, but with truthfulness, courage, and hope. 
we need to ask, where does structural racism exist? Now, we cannot trivialize this important work by labeling every interaction that makes us feel uncomfortable racist. Nor can we deny the pernicious and powerful creep of racism throughout history and within our own society. We actually need to get in there and study the realities that shape people's lives. What facts and outcomes demonstrate the presence of structural racism? What policy recommendations can we pursue to remedy these problems? Now this pull out the crowbar remodeling is gonna be hard work. How should we go about it? How can Christians start paneling our society with justice? I want to close today by reflecting on two stories in which I believe the practices of our faith point the way. Story number one. John Gruden. As many of you know, John Gruden was the coach of the Las Vegas Raiders until Monday of this past week. Gruden was forced to resign because of a series of emails that he wrote between 2011 and 2018. In these emails, Gruden made misogynistic, homophobic, and racist comments. In his resignation, Gruden tweeted, I'm sorry, I never meant to hurt anyone. And later that same day, in an attempt to explain his actions to a newspaper reporter, Gruden remarked, I don't have a racist bone in my body. The response in the sporting community to Gruden's emails and to his non-apology was fast and fierce. One commentator on ESPN remarked, Gruden had to go. Now we know who he really is. My friends, there are a hundred different ways to analyze this story. Let me offer two, a quick cultural response and then a longer theological one. First, the cultural response. I'm not sure it's ever helpful for someone to say, and especially someone who's authored a series of toxic emails, I do not have a racist bone in my body. And yes, this week I did see that a Facebook quiz was making the rounds and it claimed to be able to diagnose whether or not a person actually has racist bones in their body. The path from toxic discovery to moral outrage to just plain silliness in our culture is perilously short. Okay, now for the longer theological take. The most important book written by John Calvin, Swiss theological reformer, is entitled The Christian Institutes. And the first line in The Christian Institutes, it's a really thick book, but you could spend your entire life contemplating this first line. The first line goes like this. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God 
and of ourselves. Knowledge of God and of self. Gruden's response, I do not have a racist bone in my body, is sorely lacking in true and sound wisdom. How so? Well, clearly the coach does not know himself. Gruden's in a state of denial. I don't know why he wants or needs to deny any and all racism. It could be because he's ashamed. It could be because he really does not want his friends or family or fans to picture the word racist floating above his head. It could be that Gruden has made a political calculation that his best hope at recovering from these revelations is denying racism. Maybe, I don't know. But I do know this. The results of Gruden's actions are clear. The pain expressed by those who've played for Coach Gruden and the anguish now being reported in the Raiders' locker room threatened to tear the team apart. Carl Nassib, a defensive lineman and one of the only openly gay players in the NFL, asked for a day off to process the news. How can you strive for a leader, want to do your best for a leader, trust in a leader when you know that that leader disparages you and people like you behind the scenes. This is so far beyond political correctness. Gruden's words shred respect and trust. And he may not see it, but his emails were laced with hate. And hate, as we all know, tears at the fabric that binds people together in community. The prophet Jeremiah was all over this sort of stuff. Jeremiah gets in the king's face because the monarch's actions, failing to care for the vulnerable people in Judean society and refusing to pay those who were renovating his posh apartment, reveal his disrespect for the very people he's been called to lead. If you persist in this, Jeremiah says, your whole society will unravel. You can kiss any hopes of legacy goodbye. You're going to go out like a donkey. Jeremiah's challenge to the king brings us to the second part of our theological analysis. It goes like this. Yes, John Gruden deserved to be fired. The man needs to do some serious soul searching. But there's more. True and sound wisdom, says John Calvin, consists of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Gruden doesn't know himself. Does he know God? Do we? Knowledge of God, as hard as this may sound, means we must always hold out the possibility of redemption. Jeremiah offers this possibility to a corrupt king, Turn from your present path. Take care of the alien, the orphan, and the widow, says the prophet, and your entire society will thrive, I promise you. Coach Gruden needs to take a scrub, but a scrub brush to the crud 
clinging to his soul. He needs to acknowledge the harm he has done and to amend his ways. And we, we who worship the Christ, need to speak to him about the possibility of redemption. We don't know enough to echo his critics. Gruden's toast, he'll never change. This moment reveals who he is, who he really is. We don't know enough to say this about him. We don't even know enough to say that about ourselves. That's why every week we pray the prayer of confession. We're forever discovering and having exposed flaws in ourselves places where our ethics and our rhetoric and our hopes might be better attuned to the way and will of God. We're forever reminding ourselves here at this baptismal font that God invites us to confession, as Pastor Sarah pointed out, not to crush us, but to pardon our sins and to point us toward a new and different life. We need this reminder (laughs) Every week we need this reminder, confession, pardon, and then peace. Our society needs this reminder. And yes, John Gruden needs this reminder. We all need to be called to a better way. Story number two. It's shorter than story number one. Three years ago this fall, I presided at a memorial service for Bob Brennan. I can still sort of see Bob sitting right back around there uh, in my mind's eye. Bob was clerk of session here at this church. He was the MC at multiple fundraising events for Meals on Heels. Bob was always creative, spinning songs and skits and jokes into a homegrown variety show. Bob was my friend. He joined Amy and me at our Thanksgiving table. And Bob invited Amy and me over to dinner at his apartment too. At Bob's apartment, I was taken by the large number of DVDs that lined his shelves. Bob was a huge film buff. And nestled in and amongst those DVDs in his living room, I spotted two awards simply displayed on a small shelf. Those, he said, noticing my glance, those are my pride and joy. One award was a recognition for Bob's lifelong work at UNICEF, an organization that concerns itself with the welfare of children the world over. The other award was an annual presentation given by this church, the Kenneth O. Jones Award for Distinguished Service. Bob received it for his work on many different volunteer projects and especially for his work on Meals on Heels. This past week, while thinking about what it might mean to panel our walls with justice, my eyes fell on Bob's clear plexiglass award. This award found its way back to the church after Bob died, and it now sits upstairs in my office on a shelf. 
that reminds me of my dear friend. It reminds me of what a beautiful and joyful thing it is to decorate your life with justice. What would it look like if this were the sort of paneling we were all most proud to display? My friends, God calls us to holy renovation. So let us go out into the world in peace. Have courage as you go. Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen.